Hello, welcome to Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and carbon zero goals. Now, I'm here with Duncan and Alex this week. We don't have a guest because, well, Sarah was stuck in Shetland and we had to cancel, to be honest. But uh, we thought we'd not leave Yangin and we'd just have a... Well, since Duncan's been absent for a while, you were there for the CIH. I mean, we've all been absent for a while, to be fair. We thought we'd just have a little catch up. And there's a bunch of things we've been trying to talk about anyway. So we thought we'd just come together and have a, a little natter. So what's what's at the forefront of your mind at the minute, love? Oh, best fest, obviously. Best fest. Best fest. So I, I, I'm calling it uh, Live Aid 85 Remastered. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I think Best Fest is really good. And Sarah is presenting, isn't it? She's not seriously hosting. And uh, Jeff, be interested to see what Jeff what Jeff talks about. I haven't actually spoken to him about what his talk is. He's talking about retrofit. I think I when it was it. first mooted, it was he was supposed to be talking about passive house. Yes. No, it was Mister Passive House. But uh, but yeah. based on his his uh, barn storming TED talk, yeah. Oh, not not the TED talk. His AECB performance about embodied oh, carbon. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it should be a Bobby Dazzler. Yeah, it should be good. Yeah, it should. I think there's like uh, 500 people going along and it is really the great and good. There's a lot of really, you know, interesting and, and big organisations. And I, I think it shows you the, you know, it shows you in fairness, the best what they've done in the last couple of years has been exceptional. But it, it, whether whether the same uh, festival would have had the same appeal, you know, two years ago is questionable or three years ago is questionable. I think it's, it's, it's excellent. Well, I think it's mad how much COP26 and the like yeah. has changed the landscape. Yeah. Because it has really properly got people thinking about these issues in a much more coherent form. Uh, just for clarity, Best Fest 2020 is a festival, I'm just reading off of their website, festival events mm. showcasing best practice, new solutions, hands-on training, emerging opportunities, and much more. They're all put together by uh, Built Environment Smarter Transformation. So the guys there. Sarah, uh, what's her role now? Is she technical officer, chief technical officer? I don't, know, actually, like I don't know the don't know the exact title. She was up in Shetland, wasn't she, last week with them? So yeah, I don't really know. but uh, yeah. she's hosting. It's been put together with former uh, previous guest uh, Katrina uh, mm-hmm. Jordan and I mean Stephen Good and Douglas, Douglas is Douglas Morrison. That's it. So Douglas has now changed. Douglas is now the. I think there are two. There's a joint joint chief executive. Could be wrong. So Douglas was a director, but I think now he shares a role with Stephen. A joint chief exec, something like that. I'm fairly sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, we just advocate if you're within shouting distance of Glasgow on what is it, the 25th? 25th, Tuesday, 25th. the 25th of October. You could do a lot worse than head over. Uh, check their website, best.build. That's B E hyphen S T dot build. You'll find Best Fest on there. But yeah, it should be a really good event. I can't make it because I'm moving out. Alex will be there. Jeff's going to be there. Sarah's running the show. I think we'll be podcasting. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I was going to say we'll be, we'll be recording a few a few things. I think we'll be moving around, doing a few recordings as we go through. So uh, if you yeah. want to talk to us, uh, be part of the chat. So yeah, come and find us. Yeah, well, and you. I think it's I think it's become quite a national event though, Alex. Because you know, I'm talking to people who are based in the south, and they're saying, "Yeah, we can up to Best Fest." So, yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting how they they have a much more national profile best these days. I think it's part of their strategy as well. They they they, yeah. they say now that they are. I think they're saying they're international as well. Yeah, so yeah. It's not just right. about Scotland. Yeah, I think that was part of the rebrand. 
And we've oh. certainly been bigging it up. Every call that we've got, you know, we're performatively looking aghast if they say they're not going or they haven't heard of it. But um, And you've got the Passive House Trust Conference coming up. Yep. Same day, I think. 25th, there's a live and there's an in-person event. I think it's in Exeter. I could be wrong about that. So, yeah, that'll be good. Um, 25th and 26th of October. Yeah, that'll be cool. The one thing I did want to talk about is two things I want to talk about, if that's okay, just to hijack yeah, yeah. for a moment. So there's a really interesting, I mean, Jan Rose now, um, who's been on the pod before, has agreed to come on. And there's a lot, it's, it's, it's strange because every few months you get a little kind of um, fluttering of hydrogen and of how hydrogen might be one of the solutions and how we heat our homes. I'm trying to be objective about it. It's not something I would agree with. Um, but Jan Rose now, who is the director over at the, oh gosh, what's the, is it Re- Re- European Regulatory Assistance Project, RAP, uh, some, something like that. He's written a paper or he's written a, a, an article about how he feels it's a distraction. So he's going to come on and talk about that. I think that's excellent because there's, there's quite a lot of dissenters around hydrogen and there's quite a lot of proponents of it. Uh, but Jan's pretty well, he's pretty high regarded in terms of the, the you know, his understanding of the energy efficiency market. So that'll be really good. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Uh, I met a fellow at a funeral who gave me the first positive pitch for hydrogen power. I think Alex yeah. and I, we've been hearing some, I mean, we've been involved in some quite interesting conversations, one with the aerospace industry, sort of preemptively talking about emissions including carbon and others mm. with a mind to sort of drifting over towards hydrogen space so mm. any combustion engine at the minute yeah. uh i can't really talk about it it's uh i mean we don't know enough that's why i can't talk about it not because it's secret or anything we're in the middle of putting the proposal together it should be interesting though but even there the case for hydrogen is still so loose as to it just feels too woolly for me but i met a fella who described so this is something we've been talking about like with relation to your river clyde homes work a system for taking the excess energy in the grid so the energy that's not being used rather than just pump it into the ground they found a way uh, to divert it to the production of hydrogen for transport as a means of contributing to the decarbonization of uk cities like i don't quite understand where that goes beyond that because if you're using waste electricity to generate hydrogen and you build a system around that Mm. pretty much like the biodiesel and rvo stuff all of a sudden an industry will develop where by you're siphoning off all the electricity to pay for the fuel (laughs) which is what happened with you know soybean production and stuff like that you know there's loads of places in central and south america where food crops are being used for fuel Mm. and so people are going hungry but uh Oh man, it was the first time I, I felt I heard uh, I heard a story that was that I felt like I might be able to be enthused about. And the fellow I was having a, a chat with, we might get him on. I think mm. it would be good to have a, a better understanding about hydrogen. I think it's being used as a bit of a, a conversational gimmick and <clears throat> used as a bit of a, a smokescreen as well. So you hear about obviously blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, and what you've just described, Dan, is clearly, you know, smack bang into the the green hydrogen. But even then, 
if I understood well from something I, I, we we were discussing that is that even the production just producing um, hydrogen be it green or blue still has uh, other uh, noxious elements mm. in the production of it so it'd be good to have a better understanding of what it means and what the impacts are on all levels Michael, Michael Libre uh, has got a podcast as well. he's, he's a sort of ambassador of clean energy and you know he's got a really interesting high, because I think the first thing to say is you, you know when you decarbonize economies and, and the scale of industry you have and the diversity of industry, there's absolutely a place for hydrogen from my understanding in, in terms of how it how it can um you know, in particular things like smelting, if you're looking at high temperatures where you need to smelt steel and stuff like that, rather than use coal and and and, and hydrocarbons, you, you you would use hydrogen. So it's not it's not a case of hydrogen on its own not being relevant. It really is relevant. It's just the industry that it's more relevant within. And I think Michael Liebreich, Liebreich's got this um, ladder where at the apex of it you've got um, where it's best it's best used. You know, I think there's fertilizer industry, you know, um, smelting things like that. And at the bottom of that, what 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 he's got is is, is where it shouldn't be used. And I'm pretty sure housing's within that because the argument that he says is, um, you know, there's a lot of things that can be electrified or or that can use batteries. And, and that would be just infinitely more viable. And I mean, I think the production of hydrogen is pretty uh, inefficient. And and again, get back to the point here about hydrogen. How do you make clean hydrogen? Well, you do it through electrosis, which is using electricity. So you need lots of electricity to separate um, uh, hydrogen. And and I think that therein lies the issue. It's 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 you accept the fact there's going to be significant losses. So where is it you you want to use hydrogen? Where's the maximum impact? And I don't really think it's housing, but you know, there's the thing. I don't probably know as much as 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 a kid on. Yeah, with the hydrogen stuff, like I, uh, I'm always very dubious mm. because it's it's mad inefficient. So unless you're using it, unless you're using waste energy to generate it, it feels like like an unnecessary waste. But unless you're focusing it on specific and targeted sectors, like transport, you ain't going to be able to have aviation without hydrogen or something equivalent because i don't think electricity is going to be able to do it and one of the problems with the electricity stuff is it's not accounting for the there are lots of hidden costs with batteries so you know what's the environmental cost what's the carbon cost of mining yeah Uh, i mean it's not sustainable strictly and there are lots of other consequences Uh, it's the same with i don't know uh, i read that richard seymour book recently but there was a, a chapter in that that touched on uh, nuclear as a solution. And did you know nuclear power, whilst it is uh, it is treated as a renewable, the raw materials needed for nuclear power, they're diminishing. <laughs> We've really? already lost of it. <laughs> really? So half-lives are impressive things, right and off. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> there is a fallibility. And uh, China appears to have acquired most of those resources. So they've got it locked down. Interesting. It feels like we'd be better off focusing on Scotland's coastline for generating our Well, I think as well, and, and I haven't really had an answer to this, is I think I think um you, you know, if you're producing electricity and you're solving the, the operational element of, of climate change through cleaner energy, you, you still have to look at the embodied nature of what it is you're building. And I don't know much about nuclear power plants, you know, and, and there was a time when I when I was really supportive, but what is the embodied carbon behind building a, a, a nuclear power station? Now, I don't know. I've actually been in a nuclear power station <laughs> for my sins, and and the concrete involved in that is enormous. Massive. And all the, you know, so 
I think really interesting because bringing bringing us on to so you know talking about Jan and hydrogen who knows infinitely more than than me, um, and it'd be really good to get his his take on it. What what you mentioned there, I think I've introduced you to Ryan Philip at Dakin. Uh, Dakin's a heat pump manufacturer, and Ryan's and uh, has has written a really interesting provocation about you know we shouldn't think that we can just put heat pumps in everything. Not because the building can't take it. Not not at all. What he's saying is there's a finite amount of resources and he's got some really interesting, I would urge you to go and check out his profile on LinkedIn. He's got a really good um, article he's written and he talks about mining and and, and the realities around mining and, and how, and he, he has some comparisons between electric vehicles and, and, and Tesla just now and how we have to uh, have to do that. And I think what he's essentially saying is there are there aren't resources there. There is a finite amount of resources which have been used up. So I think we need to think about batteries and EVs and all that, and 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 think about how it's not about um, the operational side. It's about do we have enough resources to actually to actually make that transition? I, said, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm out in my depth in terms of the well, the arguments, but it's interesting. I think I think, I think oh, it is really fascinating. But I think there's something that we've just been talking about. It's about surplus energy that we can potentially harness to store and i think that's a big problem because we've been talking about using batteries and their impact is absolutely terrible uh, even though we're just still cracking on and just exploiting uh, regions and people to get it but really i think we've mentioned them before but there's this company called uh, polonized energy that use uh, sand as a, a storage mechanism so any surplus from uh, i think it's wind power solar power maybe hydro as well uh, they use to store into this sand which is very cheap it's really easy to, to to set up and it can actually provide enough heating district heating uh, for the whole of the winter like over six months and we're talking about um, scandinavia here so it's really places where they, they you know they, they can really do with that and i think it's really about we need to have a better shift into thinking how we actually save all this renewable energy that we're creating a lot of it is just lost and wasted in different ways we are trying to think about let's say using electric cars as a storage mechanism which is interesting but again we know it's inefficient but this idea of using converting it to hydrogen using also like i think duncan you've been working on projects with using uh, water as a storage mechanism as well yeah there are other things that we can do to actually start storing and saving that that energy rather than wasting it yeah i think that's right that polar thing really so it's like a sand battery isn't it? it's kind of natural and and what i was quite impressed with when i looked at it was the length of time or the ability for it to retain heat over really prolonged periods of time can't mm-hmm. really weeks um it's months they can keep up to was it months really six yeah, yeah. 1000 yeah. degrees over six months depending that's on the size of the yeah 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 storage so like yeah. uh, this was from Robbie at Drez, future guest. Shout out Robbie, are you, are you doing? Uh, get in touch. Let's get a date. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, they were using it in Finland when he was out there. I can't remember who his client was. It was someone significant. But yeah, that worked for them in Finland. Like Jesus. Scandinavian's uh, always so good. Honestly, why are they all that? Are, are Finland's class is Scandinavian, isn't it? I'm sure it is. But I don't know. I, I, I think they. Yeah, Northern European. They'll probably take offence. Yeah, imagine that. Like it, it set my mind worrying. Moving house, like, can I dig a big sand pit and install solar thermal? And <laughs> thinking about the future, can can that be a resource? Because it sounds really viable. Build a an underground insulated room and fill it with sand and kettle elements. 
it's, yeah. it's nice and simple. But I think also to yeah. come back to your point, uh, Duncan, about uh, installing heat pumps everywhere. The thinking is, is you can have, obviously, from a macro perspective, you can use these gigantic storage devices for excess energy production or to, yeah. to, to save it. But I think it's also the strategies in homes that we have to stop thinking about, oh, let's just stick a heat pump and it'll solve everything. It's about little, sometimes it's little, sometimes it's big things, but it's also about, for example, if you're going to have a heat pump, tell me if I'm if I'm right or wrong here because I don't know enough. But if we have a hyper efficient uh, water storage, so all that heating, that heat is actually stored somewhere. Again, it can be there, it can be reused, and it's all about listen little different strategies using in together are probably more effective than just trying to stick one thing and hope that it's a it's a solution for everything because it's not. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think I think what will be interesting in Scotland is to there's a local heat and energy efficiency. So in fact, Bays have replicated that, and essentially it comes from Denmark where uh, government through local authorities have to sort of set strategic zones within their areas as to what what technology, what legislation, what, what incentives are used. And I think that'll be, because I think you're right, you know, there's lots of different things can be, you know, and, and, and your strategy for an urban area would be different from a suburban area and a rural area, of course. So, you know, I, and, and, you know, none of us really know the answer. I mean, what, what, what I was always impressed at, we, I went to Denmark with the Scottish government. I think I've said this before, certainly to you guys back in 2014. And what was really impressive was where they looked at things through a holistic city view around switching heat. And we don't really do that in the UK. What, what I mean by that, we talk about district heating in the UK, but we really talk about homes, Yeah. This, most different heating systems you go through are small, so the Danes don't really look at much below 1,500, and it's usually like in a mono system where it serves one house type, or, or, or it's, it may serve a university, but nothing else. And I think where we have to look at things is, is the optimisation of that across different tenures um, and, and different businesses, you know, commercial premises, educational, hospitals, housing, shops, all, all that kind of stuff, because that's... I think the efficiencies of that kind of scale are where you can make things work, you know, but if you're simply providing heat to 100 and 300, 400, 500 homes, there's a, there is an inefficiency built into there. And I, I know there's people that, that could correct me on that. And, and we probably should get more people involved with this or heat. You know, and we'd spoken to Morton in the past, but there's, there's a, there's a really interesting project over in Clyde Bank in Scotland where they are doing that. The local authorities expanding a heat network to different tenures. So it'd be interesting to understand how they how they plan around that in, in, a, in a more efficient way. I was having a look at uh, I was on the Guardian's website the other day and saw an interesting article about the rent caps in Scotland. And it was the first time I saw because like everywhere else I've heard about rent caps in Scotland broadly, I mean I agree with it. The market's out of control. But this highlighted the fear in the social housing industry about what this means for them. Just wondering, uh, are you able to talk about that? Oh, like, are, are you even don't, able to? Don't, like, don't mention it. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I'll, t- I'll give you my personal view on it. And my personal view is I can I can understand, you can kind of understand the logic behind it. I'm not sure whether it's politically posturing because from a, an RSL perspective, the, the cap is set until just before RSL was actually uh, redefine what the rent cre- increase is going to be. So essentially, no, no, no RSL will be setting a rent, rent increase until April next year. However, what I would say is you got to look at the, the backdrop. So we have, uh, I think, a pretty progressive government in Scotland who, who interestingly, when we spoke to the CIH and, and Gavin, he said the same thing. And, and and Callum, where you have a government who has been consistent in housing policy, and and and, and there's probably been some benefits of that, of you know, long term strategy, which I think we all agree with. However, if you look at the the social rented sector. 
um, and the increasing costs and the budgets that most of us have have to deal with. I think a, a, a rent freeze is, is particularly dangerous if you're going to enact that on a long-term basis because what you could potentially put is lots of RSLs, RSLs into negative equity pretty quickly. David Bookbinder's written a piece on this and I think he expects uh, a three-year rent cap for most local authorities would see them having to go into, um, not not negative, I think negative is not the right, the right, but having to draw in their, or, or exhaust their reserves. Now, from a business perspective, that's not good. You, you wouldn't do that in business. If you, over three years, exhaust your reserves and your, your, and your working capital is on the margin, I think that's quite dangerous, to be honest with you. I can totally get how you want to restrict people putting the rents up in the private rented sector. But again, I'd be interested to find out the numbers in the private rent sector. Most private landlords are small private landlords who, you know, who are in the same position as most of us in terms of the cost of living. They have more assets. But I'm not sure. I'm, I'm quite worried about it, to be honest with you. I think, I think it has the potential to um, restrict investment and actually potentially harm lots of local, lots more housing associations. I think that's really interesting. In the episodes that we recorded at the CIH, Scotland's Housing Festival, the landlords across the board, across the whole of the UK, they fear the changes to EPCs and the need for retrofitting because, you know, it's a cost they weren't anticipating having to afford. When you extrapolate that to a much bigger entity like social housing with much less flexibility, and the picture changes quite dramatically because, yeah, how are you going to meet your fuel poverty uh, mandate? Is that mandate mm. the right word? Your legal obligations to ensure yeah. uh, your residents aren't, I think is it 95% residents aren't suffering in fuel no, poverty by 2040. Yeah. That has the potential to put people out of business anyway. And with what's happening, thanks to Liz Truss's, uh, or sorry, uh, Kwarteng's, uh, <laughs> his fabulous strategy for the English economy, or the, it's not the English economy, it's, his fabulous strategy for strengthening the pound or the way he's crashed the pound and forced circumstances so interest rates have had to rise, that's already going to put lots of private landlords under immense pressure, whereby either they have to raise rents or get out of the market. Now, that either pushes people into fuel poverty because particularly in the south of England, they're already putting half of their wages into to rent, never mind the rest of it. So it's either going to have that effect where rents are raised or these landlords are going to uh, leave the market, which means that tenants are going to get evicted, which means there's the potential for bigger beasts like your your professional uh, rent farms to sweep in and do what they like with rents because they've cornered the market. Or you're putting pressure on rents because you increase scarcity, uh, the rates go up anyway, and so the yeah. same pressure, the same pressures emerge, just as a a, a property of the conditions, uh, or people get forced into a social housing market, which is already oversubscribed as it is. I mean, that's it. Certainly, in Scotland, the the oversubscription to the social housing market is enormous. I mean, most most you know, I, I would say, I mean, for an average. Uh, back in in Renfrewshire, when I was at Renfrewshire, I think they had a waiting list of ten thousand for 
um, 12,000 homes. I mean, that's, and that's, those numbers will be fairly typical. So there isn't enough. We look at the, we look through a lens of um, a sort of greedy private rented sector. It's not really true, you know. I mean, that, that's a kind of, kind of lazy narrative. Yeah, I'm sure there's some social landlords who you would not want to share a pint with, but there's a lot of people who have bought a second home uh, uh, and, and, and trying to, um, trying to make a wee bit of money from it. Now, I was talking to somebody last week. Um, I'm in quite a fortunate position mortgage wise, but I was talking to somebody last week whose mortgage is going up by £250 a month. They're on, you know, an average wage, but nothing, nothing you would say is a high earner. And between, you know, those mortgage increases and also the lack of availability of mortgage products, you're now looking at half of the products available that were two months ago, I think, might be even be less than that. You know, you're actually squeezing a, a significant amount of private landlords who are, you know, genuinely you know, decent. Um, and, and as we discussed in the CIH, you need a healthy, flexible private rented market for an economy and, and certainly in, in, in lots of places, whether it be rural or, or city. So I, I, I'm just really worried. And, and that's before we even talk about energy energy bills. So 250 quid for an additional mortgage. So are they just going to have to swallow that? Well, yeah. <laughs> well, oh man, this is it. Like the, the private rental sector has been pitched as a sort of money tap in recent years. And it is yeah. it is a really poor state of affairs where the money tap gets turned off because of interest rates, which for some reason have been predicted never to rise ever again. Like you slam that with fuel poverty, not fuel poverty, energy crisis, and the re- the needs for retrofit in terms of your EPC. There's an awful lot of people encountering a story, a new version of the story, where they aren't the victor. You used to be that people would make, uh, but the ethical way of being a private landlord was often pitched certainly in conversations i had with folk that you make money to pay your mortgage and the money you make is on the value of the asset but in recent times particularly in london folk want double bubble but now they've reached a point where financial advisors are recommending folk get out of the rental market in london because wow. it's it's so overheated as to be unsustainable so I mean that's the thing. I don't. So what? I mean, this is the thing. What happens then when you have, let's even say you have a ten percent of the private rented market has to sell their, their assets because it's kind. Of, what, what, what happens? I mean, does that? And this is naive in my part. I probably should know. Does that then make it easier for house home buyers? And but then it doesn't because those home buyers are faced with. Or those potential buyers of those those houses are faced with the same problems the rest of us have. You know, i.e., the cost of living crisis, the the lack of choice of mortgage products, the high interest rates. It, it just seems an absolute storm. So yeah, yeah. So this is uh, the tenants that we're talking about. They've they've been unable to enter the market because of rising prices, perpetually rising prices, and perpetually rising rents. So saving up for a deposit, paying your rent doesn't count towards your credit rating, and it makes it less tenable that you'd be able to save up for your deposit. So we've hit a point now. So we're supposed to be exchanging on this this house. I mean, it's supposed to be happening today. It's been supposed to be happening Thursday and Friday as well. So fingers crossed they pull the fingers out. Um, like We've been watching. We're still getting all the emails coming through from the estate agents in the area. And every other email is price reduction. So prices really? are dropping because, wow. I mean, they have to, because the interest rates have gone up so much. And yeah. now that interest rates have risen as they have and the products that, products that are available are only available to a, a select clientele because yeah. like so many mortgage offers have been withdrawn from first-time buyers because of the predicted impending recession. Oh, man, what are you going to do? 
So the eventual, the the likely outcome of those sorts of market conditions are that uh, the big beasts, like your Black Rocks, yeah, they've got the capital, they've got the liquidity, they can come in and they can they can fill their boots. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Even at these prices, because I mean, like yeah, Jeff's yeah. saying, like when they're buying off plan, they'll pay upwards uh, or they'll pay above market yeah. rate up to twice the value of the property because they know it's a secure asset. So when you've got pension funds investing in real estate, like yeah, oh man. But just give me, I mean, because what what slightly changed subject, but on the same kind of theme in terms of we're we're in this utterly ridiculous situation where, and I think I saw a figure. Again on LinkedIn during the week about the government's going to borrow 170 billion in, in terms of the subsidies around the the energy bills. Can't remember what the the um what the term is that they've used for it, their um, strategy. But you know, they if you had if we had as a nation borrowed 170 billion three four five years ago and started to look at a program, my God, we're in a better position than what we are just now. With it. But the the this is and this is interesting from conservative policy who like to think that they are prudent with money and in control financially is there's no reason there, if prices don't go down well we have to borrow 170 billion next year yeah I mean, man. It, 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 and you and i are going to pay that back through 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 taxes so it seems to me an utterly farcical position that we 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 couldn't get government to sub not yeah, subsidize i suppose is probably the wrong word invest and retrofit and the demand reduction around our properties. But yet now, well, we've had the ridiculous situation of um, not wanting to pay £15 million for an advertising campaign to tell people to reduce uh, their energy bill, but quite happy borrowing £170 billion to, to give us all, I don't know, four or five hundred quid off our bill. But what a ridiculous situation, because fundamentally, nothing's changed. This isn't an investment. This is a bailout for the for the energy companies. I'm not entirely sure who's making money here. Oh, man, it's it's the energy providers. Like it's the most expensive can being kicked down the road. Jesus wept. But on the other side of the aisle, as it were, we've got Starmer offering to invest lots of money in this green investment bank idea, which is wonderful until you dig into the detail where it's another instance of getting the state to shoulder the costs of the R&D and that the private sector retain the rights to all the profits. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. I mean, it's better than nothing, right enough. Yeah. But fundamentally, something's broken here because what, what we're and, and certainly the, the system and, and, and the way that, we're, that we are provided the energy is take out how we retrofit our homes and how we how we can reduce the demand. For, take take that out of the equation. But how we are provided the energy that's a broken system right now. That's not working, uh, and, and and that needs investment. Although it needs to actually reimagined because isn't isn't the this is going to sound like the Marxist here, but you know it, it, it's about the means of production. How do you produce energy in an equitable uh, and a local and a renewable way? And that's the question. I'm not sure I have the answer to it, but simply handing money over to some of the larger companies who produce and, and buy energy at scale isn't going to work. It's certainly there's, there's no long term investment in how we actually change to a different model. You know, which can be controlled, which can which can be equitable at a local level. Germans do a lot of that, a lot of local energy production and a local distribution of it in a way that's sustainable. Yeah. Well, I mean, even they've been rinsed out by the Russia turning off the gas taps. Like it's sure. uh man, it's a horror show. So how are people reacting to this in terms of we've spoken a lot about people uh we've spoken a lot about the place of retrofit in social housing. Like yeah. we wrote that white paper on it, uh about yeah. the it is a useful catalyst. The providers that we speak to see it as the most obvious market to to learn in. 
because mm. you know you've got volume you've got guaranteed money and the able to pay market is only just opening up its eyes to the the value how are you and your uh, colleagues in the social housing industry reacting to this like is it derailing your plans is it changing your plans how's it affecting them i think it's um it's interesting i mean i think there's a there is a genuine and what is nice about working in social housing is the type of people that work in social housing genuinely want to do some good and i, I think you know that's you know, of course there's exceptions but the vast majority of people are there certainly not with the money but because they want to try and, and, and have an impact and i think there is a genuine horror about what's going to happen over the next six months or so and we've said this we've we had this discussion off and on but there is a horror of we will have people who will not heat their home, who cannot heat their home, who who will be living in conditions which are Dickensian, let's be honest with you, you know, compatible with the outside conditions. And and that's that's a situation in the 21st century, which is is quite disgusting that we've we've got to that. So there's a limit to what social landlords can actually do. You know, we we have limited budgets and 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 you, you there's not a lot you can do short term. To address that, I think what we are thinking about now is what are the long-term goals and objectives. Um, so, what can you do at least in terms of energy advice just now, and 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 short-term measures which might mitigate some of the worst effects. But I think long-term there is a genuine need to develop strategies which don't get it back here in four, five, six years' time. So, without saying too much, there's not a huge amount I can really say around that. But I think there's a perhaps a willingness now to look at models that might not have been palatable five, ten years ago or might not be considered. Scott Foster at the UN, who who, who chat to regularly, he's a, he's a good friend. Scott has said something consistently for the years that I've known him, and he, he talks about how we consume energy in a way that is um, dissimilar to other forms of, of service. And, and and he always picks up a mobile phone and, and, and calls and said, look, you know, you don't pay per minute for that. You pay for a service, you pay for, you know, a broadband service, you pay for a phone service and so on. And I think what we probably have to look at doing is providing a, not heat with rent, but an energy as a service. How do we start to look at models that say, right, we will give you 20 degree heat, 18 hours a day or 21 degree heat, 20, you know, I don't know. And I think, you know, Starting of starting from that as the basis of how you can actually provide warm, dry homes for people. How do you work back in terms of how you do that? It's yeah. a long answer, isn't it? Should have well, I mean, for me and said, "Shut up." Nah, there are no simple no. solutions. Like it's a it's a horror show. I mean, that's why we wrote that white paper because that's yeah. Like when you first told us about that as a, an idea long time ago. I mean, that's a year ago now. Yeah. Oh yeah, we had our anniversary. Uh, yeah. Recently, like right, the, yeah. the podcast had its anniversary. Right, I think I we're maybe a, a month away from having first yeah. appeared. Like it, that seemed like the only viable avenue to pursue. Certainly, where market-based solutions are the only uh, solutions that will be countenanced. I think, um, oh man, I think what when we wrote that, when you guys wrote that, I think what we looked at was a future point we could because we didn't we we weren't in the situation we're in just now and i think where we felt we were going to go over the next three four years was where we are just now is to say look over a period of time energy will become unsustainable if you if you don't look at some form of retrofit and if you don't look at a model that can that can deploy that retrofit at scale regardless of tenure and that can look at potentially leveraging in uh, institutional investment which um which you're comfortable with so i think where we're at is somewhere we didn't expect to be until another three four four years time but what is absolutely clear just now is the current system is broken and if we look at a market-based approach to providing retrofit products right i use that word products as opposed to services that's not going to cut it you know we, we, we're simply saying to 
a, a company. You sell the product, but the consumers are responsible for it. That doesn't work. <laughs> so you we're proposing a Marxist-based approach in a market-driven ah. system. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, can we cut that bit? <laughs> no, I mean... I, I'm getting more flexible on it. I think the market needs to make a profit. The market absolutely has to be used. I guess what I'm trying to say is how, what are the checks and balance for the end user? And, and I think if we think that building control or local authority is going to do that, they're not. They're not really there to do that. You know, there's 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 a difference between a quality of service and minimal standards. I think though, I think to be it's a bit pessimistic to say this way, but I think to sum it up, we just don't know what we're doing. And I'm just talking holistically. That's the best way to sum it up. All right. Yeah. So uh speaking of not knowing what we're doing then, can we have a recap on your shed? So Alex's passive shed in his backyard. It's been alluded to, but I saw some photos coming through over the weekend. Nice. Yeah. <clears throat> So, I mean, I'd, I don't know how, compared to the, the scale of what we were just talking about, how this compares, really. <laughs> um, but it sort so. of fits in the learning as you go paradigm. Yeah, so so basically, I'm, I've decided, and it's taken well, a long time. Uh, start from the beginning. Like, uh, explain, uh, for anyone who might not have heard about your shed in the past, just, just lay out a bit of the background and where you're up to now. Yeah, yeah, so now, as, as I was saying, so yeah, this has been taking a long time and I think that's actually part of the the story because it all started with when we were uh, fortunate enough to buy a house so we did a a small extension to the kitchen and at a time I wanted to I was interested this was way before I got involved with uh, with you Duncan and everyone else in sort of the retrofit sector so I didn't know much but I had heard once about um, uh, structural insulated panels and so I thought the idea was brilliant you know modular builds um, it's it's very light it's very efficient it's very easy to to implement and uh, when I spoke to the people, different architects, et cetera, no one knew about it. So it was interesting. I thought, well, you know, no one actually knows about these things in in the sort of the, the private sector. It wasn't something that, that I was able to get advice on. I've realized now there are loads and loads of uh, outlets and people I can talk to nowadays, but you just don't know if, uh, if you don't know where to look. So I had to have a big fight where basically I got the builders in and they were leaving literally five centimeter gaps in the uh, PIR insulation between the walls. And I was trying to explain to them from my basic knowledge, look, guys, this is not enough. And they just could understand that, you know, I was the annoying client who was coming in and trying to tell them how to do their job and, and all that sort of stuff. Literally, I had to r- rip out the, um, the breathe, well, not the breathing membrane, but the actual, the, the airtight barrier because they were hiding these defects. So I had to sort of pull it off and ask them to do that. And I felt, I found that very, tough and I just found it very difficult for me as a homeowner to be able to not be able to explain things so that is a sort of a whistle stop tour as to why I decided to build uh, a small shed which is going to be hopefully my my office but I also call it my training rig since I've met uh, Katrina and uh, and the, the the wonderful teams at Best where they've got training rigs and they're showing people how to do stuff and obviously when I went up to Best and I saw how they were doing it I was quite ashamed of the, the level of what I'm doing but my shed is uh, my training rig where it enables me, from my perspective, to understand what we're talking about when we do this podcast, when we're speaking to clients on obviously a very small scale. But the shed is an interesting challenge because it's in a very, very, very small garden. It's only one meter 50 wide by 3.15 uh, meters uh, deep. And it's also very, very, very close up to the uh, to the um, the neighbor's barriers. So obviously, there's uh, different challenges, such as the height. It's got a flat 
roof with a which is actually got a green roof on top we and actually dan helped me with this when we built it i built it off the foundations and then we wheeled it into place after having clad one site which was quite fun anyway again cutting long story short uh i've been basically just trying to use it as the way to test everything out so making sure that when i put up the uh, external sheathing. I taped all the all the gaps. Uh, I actually took the opportunity from inside to actually um, use um, soundproof mastic or something equivalent to also uh, make it more airtight inside the insulation. Try and make it as airtight as possible. And at the same time, I put up a picture for for you guys to have a look at. Where I've now got to the stage where I've put in the uh, airtight membrane in there, and then having to also make sure that every single outlet is uh, also a, a, where a possible airtight. And it's interesting because actually in the last two days, whereas before I'd done this, the shed kept a, sort of a nice, maybe 70%, which is quite high humidity. It's now shot up to 85 because I haven't got a ventilation system in there. And then the plan is, is really to use it for different purposes in terms of also studying other things. So I've uh, got two uh, sort of exhaust pipes at the back of the shed because again, it's because it's sloping towards the top. I realized that a lot of the humidity and the heat will be ended up over there. So I intend to uh, build a heat recovery system thing, but I'll be using uh, uh, tin cans to, to do it because again, they're very, very slim the the, the, th the thickness of the uh, the material is very thin and i believe it's an interesting way to understand also how how it works so there's different ways of using them to basic, basically create a very simple heat exchanger which itself will be powered by a solar panel on the roof and the idea is to help the entire little shed to be heated only with the use of the server we'll have in there and hopefully myself uh with my own body heat and having a proper heat recovery system ventilation system to make sure that the the air remains dry enough and and the, the quality of the air is is good enough as well um i think yeah i mean that covers it really it's a it's a fun project but it takes some time and it really shows me that you know attention to detail does take time and i yeah. understand why the industry sometimes is a bit reticent to go through that amount of yeah. level of detail and uh of getting things right yeah that's really great i think you're right though i, th I think it is about attention to detail and i think that's a, i think that's potentially a cultural thing i don't having worked in other parts of europe i think there is there is more attention to detail except if you go and work in germany i feel there is but that's brilliant. I think it's really, really good. It's been really interesting. Else. Well, it's been really interesting hearing the journey you've been on, in that you've you've made plenty of mistakes as you've gone along and oh, had yeah. to uh exactly. like it's it's see, this is where trying to follow passive house principles makes sense. All too often it's a bit of a bullshit. You know, people passive house principles is a euphemistic way of uh talking about cutting corners. Not actually bothering with Passive House itself, but in doing so and being willing to acknowledge mistakes and failures within the system. Like, did you have a problem with your tape that you selected? Now, this uh, one actually came um, when I, when we started working with uh, with Katrina at Best. Uh, she was showing me some uh, of the training materials and some of it was provided by uh, an online supplier. And I went on and I bought their tape, uh, which is uh, Vanna and it's actually far, far better than the other one I bought for the exterior of the shed, which I can't remember. It's the one from DuPont, I think, where I found it much more flexible. So actually, in terms of being able to use it, again, there are some products out there which are purposely built, you know, flexible, proper tape, or even things that are actually made with little grommets so you can actually put in uh, electric cables through, etc. But from this level, I was able to use it in a more flexible manner. The only thing is, is that when you don't know what you don't know, and if you're not doing it as a professional, 
Well, you're making mistakes all the time. Like, you, you can see because it's harder, like, literally to the point where it's just getting stuck on your fingers and uh, yeah. you can't stick it on properly. It's it's not an easy job. And that's the thing that people need to understand is that it yeah. takes real skill to do it properly. And I, I think yeah. that's the best learning curve for me is that I know I haven't done it right. And I, I haven't missed one. Maybe if I do four or five sheds you know, in the future, which I won't, but uh, I can see that one day I could become a professional, but this is a professional job for, for highly, well, for highly skilled people, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was it. Like uh, your tape selection, you got a more metallic tape, which once it was in ah, situ. Uh, that was my first mistake. Yes, I used the uh, aluminium tape to to tape the outside of the uh, the sheathing, which was wrong because actually when there's movement, it will snap. I mean, luckily I have used other ways of um, uh, airtight making airtight uh, measures around the building in other ways, but that was yeah clearly the wrong choice. But nowhere in any of the reading and Alex. Like he does all this reading for fun. Like this is his actual hobby. It's not his job. Like he's this is this is him having fun. Oh yeah. Nowhere had you read anyone give you a heads up that like don't you tape that will go brittle. Well, I think it, it comes back. To, I have to bring it back to what we do. Dan is everything is user experience. It's we are not given the right breadcrumbs and handholding. There is too much assumption in the industry that uh, people know what they're doing, which by and large is true. But as soon as you try and get people from the outside, well. It's it's really hard. I mean, I'll come back to the point of when I asked an architect, you know, can you do something with SIPs or anything else? Oh, well, no, but, you know, we can do really good good stuff than that, the, the traditional way. Well, well, no, mm-hmm. we, there are better ways of doing things. I think what's interesting, Justin, we'll probably, if you can show these pictures on on, on the, the pod, it would, be, it would be good. But I think what instantly what I think about and how we traditionally do things is more about aesthetics and less about performance. So what, you, what you're showing here just now is where we're actually placing, where you're placing electrical cable and stuff. And a lot of the time, the the difference, in, and we're looking at a project just now, we're going to have to um, uh, essentially bring the services into or or in front of a barrier. And that's, even that concept, even that conceptual thing itself is quite interesting, whereas parks are usually being hiding cable and behind something, Yeah. No, no, you yeah. can't do that, mate, because you're going to break my barrier. And I think that in itself is quite a cultural shift about how you, because in, they're, in fairness to these guys, they're doing it because they want to look at, they want to make it like a tidy job, a neat job, a aesthetically pleasing job. It's the marriage when you can still do that and get a higher performance, but it's just a different way of working. That in itself is actually quite a sea change in the mentality of most trades in the UK. One thing I will say there is that it really gives, makes me really excited about the sort of off-site build, uh, you know, developing because really, it's really fantastic to know that you have the support of not only just machinery, but obviously the skills, computer skills and the people still to be able to build something where you can come on site and you can achieve that level of efficiency in a, in a really sort of easy manner. And I really, I really have a lot of uh, time for that now having done this, you know, literally don't build a door yourself, by the way, I actually yeah. built the door myself. So I had proper insulation in it and it, that was a mistake. Well, <laughs> we're going to, um, we're going to probably, um, should, we should say that best fest, Ellie George is speaking from Energy Strong and um, she'd be a really good, and she's said she, she wants to come on in the path, I think she would, because they are essentially an offsite construction um, retrofit um, pro, uh, model, um, albeit doing a lot of work in the sort of Nottingham area just now. That's a it's a Dutch concept, Dutch company, but that would be really interesting. Yeah, cool. Yeah, all right. Well, on that uh, positive note, after an awful lot of doom preceding it, perhaps we should uh, wrap up. Um, we'll get Alex to put together a post, and we'll, I mean, we'll put a bunch of uh, links to the things we've referred to in the the show notes. You know, this is a, a long-winded way, an hour-long reading list and a bit of chat. 
I just hope the listeners are kind if I if I put my pictures up because it really is uh, for the amateurs. So uh, yes, please be nice. <laughs> oh mate, you've done a belting job, like nice. for real. Thank you, like it's really yeah. it's properly impressive. So I'm I'm sure you know I'll be kind to him in the comments. Don't be rude, but be helpful. But yeah, man, I'm sure folk oh, will yeah. be. Any advice? Any advice? I'd be uh, really be interested to hear your thoughts. All right, excellent. Well, we'll wrap up. Oh, all fire. Let me find the. Uh, where are the things I need to say? The shout, not the shout outs. The. Uh, ah, here we go. Right. So before we go, a few asks. I think, as I've said on the last few, we'd like the podcast to reach more people. So rate the podcast. Uh, five star ratings do make a difference. So I've heard. I mean, I don't don't know. Uh, I just it's what I hear other people on other podcasts say. Uh, subscribe if you don't already. The more people who download it on the first day, I think the better it rates in the algorithms. Although I don't really know that either. That's just something else I've heard people say. Most importantly, though, please share it if you think it's worth listening to. We get a lot of traction on LinkedIn. That's really good. I mean, just email it to your mates if you think they'd be up for it. And finally, if you think there's anyone we should be speaking to, email us at zeroambitionspodcast at gmail.com. Within reason, we'll talk to anyone. Like, if you've got a tale to tell or you're an interesting person, hit us up and we'll have an atter. I mean, we'll have an atter offline first and then we'll look into it. But, uh, yeah, man, we'd love to hear from you. Anything else from you two? No. All right. No. Cool. All right. Join ACAN. Join the ACB. Subscribe to Passive House Plus. Advertise in Passive House Plus if you've got a business. I think that's it. And if you need any help with your marketing, messaging or websites, just hit up me and Alex at everythingisuserexperience.com. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, we'll speak to you next week. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Thanks, lads. Cheers. See you.